Hi, this is Jerry Salai at Tricia Advisors, and I'm speaking again with my colleague, John Carverly, our Chief Economist at Tricia. So, John, welcome to the podcast. And can you tell me anything about what you think central banks have been doing in terms of policy approaches over the last 50 years? And what do you think they might be doing as we go forward? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Well, I mean, something really big happened 50 years ago, which was that the US went off the Bretton Woods uh, gold exchange standard, which basically kept the dollar fixed to, to gold, and then other currencies were fixed to the dollar. So there wasn't a whole lot for central banks to do at that point, except to administer that standard. So they, they had to cut interest rates uh, you know, if, they, if their currency looked like being too strong, or raise interest rates if their currency looked like being too weak. That was more often the problem. Um, but other than that, they, they didn't really have to think too much about you know, what the policy approach was. Uh, but since then, they really had to invent new ways, new, new fundamental frameworks for, for how to think about things. Uh, and that, I think, has been the story of the last 50 years. And I think the, the lesson looking back over that longer period uh, is that really things keep changing. Um, they keep inventing new approaches. And I doubt if that's finished yet. We've already seen some new approaches in the last few years, which we can talk about. Um, but it was really that coming off the uh, off the dollar exchange standard by President Nixon in 1971, just 50 years ago, that kicked all this off. So what you're saying is that the US went off the gold standard and central banks came in and out to do things to try to deal with currency you know, being too strong or the currency being too weak. <laughs> But we don't really do that anymore, do we, in terms of currency targeting? Well, some countries do, of course, but, but actually we've moved on in a way. I, I think what happened after the uh, after the, the currency exchange standard went away was we had this period of floating currencies. And then two big problems emerged. One was inflation, um, had big inflation problems in the 70s and 80s. And the other was currency instability, that uh, we had uh, currencies that would suddenly devalue, create all kinds of problems. And so I think central banks have been trying to find a way to deal with these these really twin problems. And they've come up with different approaches. Uh, I mean, we, we've had the sort of muddling through approach, I would say, which has been tried by lots of countries uh, over the years. But sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. It can get very politicized. Uh, in the UK, for example, the, the Bank of England didn't even control interest rates until 1997. Before that, it was the, the Treasury, the government. So it was a very political process. Um, we had monetarism, we, we can talk about that, as I said. Um, and then most recent and at uh, the moment, the, the current scheme in most countries, uh, both developed and emerging, is some kind of inflation targeting. But you also have things like where, where a country would peg its currency to a basket of currencies or to the dollar, for instance, like Hong Kong. Hong Kong, I think, has been a screaming success in terms of pegging the currency to the US dollar. Um, however, this usually ends in disaster, right? So let's say we get an independent Scotland, just throwing it throwing it out there for you, John. Should they peg their currency to the pound? Yeah, well, actually, I think it's going to be tough for Scotland. I mean, the, the reason that Hong Kong has been very successful is they have a very conservative fiscal policy. So they, they run a surplus, basically, on the budget the whole time. And Scotland's not known for that, as you know. Um, I mean, there's still debate about exactly where the budget will come out if, if uh, England and Scotland split. But it looks as though Scotland overspends substantially. So obviously the government could get fiscal conservatism. Um, they really could fix the budget, but that would be a major change in, in government policy. If they didn't, then I think uh, the new central bank of Scotland would have a problem. 
um, if they try to peg the currency with a large uh, fiscal deficit, it's it's going to be tough, frankly. Um, so they probably would try to muddle through. Um, they'd probably try to uh, join the euro and subsume themselves in that. But of course, there's a there's a uh, requirements for entering the euro. You have to have a low budget deficit. You have to have a period of stability beforehand before you're allowed to join the euro. Um, so I think I think it would be quite an interesting but quite a tough thing to do. Um, and I would say, I mean, just coming back to Hong Kong, they've been very successful in, in keeping the currency stable and, and that's served them well. But in the period after the Asian crisis in 1997, they also went through one heck of a, an adjustment uh, in order to bring wages down and get more competitive again. It would have been easier to devalue. This was the, this was the problem that Greece had to face in, in 2012, 2013. It could have left the euro, which would be a, an upset, but then it would have recovered more quickly than what it did, which was to stay with the euro and make and make the adjustment over time. But I think your example is really good, John. And for me, it seems like the euro concept has sort of melded a bunch of ideas into this you know, European Central Bank that models itself, I guess, on a monetarist approach. But would that be kind of right from the 70s, 80s and the experience that Germany had? In terms of, you know, they have to tamp down inflation, they have to make sure that the central bank acts in a, what you and I would consider to prob probably consider to be a, a reasonable manner, rather than to allow the government to do all sorts of excess stuff and drive inflation through the roof and a bit to do whatever they want to do with their debt. So it seems to me like a lot of European countries have kind of had to follow what the Bundesbank and other hard, if you put the quotation marks on the word hard, central banks wanted them to do. Um, so can you give me a, a couple of lines on this, you know, monitorist approach, if you want to call it that, and what's going to come next after this approach? Yeah, so I mean, in Europe, the uh, before the um, the Euro European currency, it was basically the Bundesbank was was the lead currency, and everybody pegged to that. Uh, of course, it was a range; they didn't peg to a particular level. They had a range there, um, and then Germany, as you said, followed a sort of a monetarist policy. I mean, mon it wasn't a, a really strict monetarist policy, but they did look closely at what was happening to the money supply. And of course, everybody knows that the Bundesbank and Germany generally is very anti-inflation. So they were really anxious to avoid inflation. So that they had a lot of credibility for that. When I mean, it took Paul Volcker in the US when he was uh, head of the central bank, it took him basically 10 years to, to really establish that kind of credibility. And then that was carried on by Alan Greenspan. Um, but Germany had that naturally because of their hyperinflation experience in the 1920s. Um, so that everybody knows that Germany is against inflation. So, so Europe had that system before where France and the other countries essentially had to follow what, the, what Germany did. And then um, the, with the new single currency, um, it, it had the European um, board instead of just Germany controlling things. Um, but still, the ECB has followed largely a, a German sort of approach. The only big departure, I would say, was quantitative easing. I'm not sure if Germany would have been very keen on that, but if it had been running things on its own. Um, but it may well have gone that way, too. OK, John. But I mean, it's I guess most of us in the markets can see certain cycles and lifespans of ideas. And one idea since the 1990s seems to be that central banks target a positive inflation rate, usually around 2%-ish. Um, one, can you talk a little bit about that, the history of how that evolved? Mm -hmm. And maybe to begin with, 
why do we want positive inflation? I mean, as somebody earning a steady paycheck, surely you want prices to go down so your purchasing power goes up relative to prices. And, you know, the idea of a car, a new car being cheaper next year than this year, isn't that bad of an idea, is it? Yeah, I mean, there's there was a big debate about this when the 2% inflation target was chosen, and there's been more of a debate about it again in, in recent years. I think there are a number of reasons for it. One was that the central banks were concerned that if they targeted zero inflation, um, but then when they wanted to cut interest rates to get the economy moving, they knew they could only cut them to zero or maybe just below zero. So it would be quite difficult to get a negative real interest rate. And a negative real interest rate should stimulate the economy. Um, whereas if you have a 2% inflation running along, uh, then you go to zero and you've got a, a negative real interest rate. So that that was an important reason. Um, another reason was that uh, there was some concern that, you know, if you do think prices are falling, then you may actually delay spending. Um, I mean, some of us do that, don't we? If we think the computer's going to be 10% cheaper next year, we kind of hold off. There's, there's no rush. But there was a concern that, that would, the deflation itself would lead to people delaying uh, not spending, and that that itself would would slow the economy. So I think that was that was that was really the driver. And then the idea was that a two percent inflation, it's actually so low that people don't pay it very much attention. Um, it's it's in other words, inflation arguably isn't really a problem unless it hits four or five percent. Because remember, it is it is an index of of lots of different prices, and prices some prices are going up, some are going down, some are stable. Uh, the actual number that the government comes up with. Well, it's the best estimate they can make, but uh, the man in the street doesn't necessarily, you know, see inflation as exactly two percent. Uh, what they see is some prices rising, some falling. That's really good, thanks, John. Well, one of the things you mentioned though was that central banks want to have the ability to bring real rates into you know negative territory. Is this what happened during the global financial crisis? Yeah. Um, I mean, at that point, interest rates were reduced to zero in, in most countries, and uh, you still had some inflation running along because, of course, commodity prices were quite buoyant in 2008. So inflation was quite high. You get interest rates negative, and that, that obviously stimulates asset prices and, and supposed to stimulate spending. It didn't work out, uh, and you didn't get a particularly strong recovery out of the 2008 crisis because everybody was so shell-shocked. Um, you know, banks suddenly uh, realized they'd been taking far too much risk and they were trying to improve their balance sheets. A lot of companies were, were really uh, shocked by what happened because uh, they thought they had um, lines with the banks and the banks suddenly cut them. So uh, a lot of companies had near-death experiences in 2008, 2009. So, so their response was, OK, we've got to run a much more conservative balance sheet. So, uh, you know, we need more cash, we need less debt. Uh, so we're going to be cautious about spending. And the same went for households. Um, you know, they, they suddenly, uh, jobs were lost, um, small businesses were lost. Um, a lot of people became much more cautious. So even with negative real interest rates, it took a long time to come out of the global financial crisis. But arguably, if inflation had started at zero uh, before the crisis, um, then it would have been even more difficult uh, because you wouldn't have even been able to get negative interest rates. Okay, so taking rates down to getting negative real interest rates what was i guess so it, it helped the economy recover like you said right but mm -hmm. as as you also point out we got a big dead load now in terms of governments because part of the process of stimulating the economy for a lot of central banks was to pursue some sort of asset purchase bonds and like in the us um 
and also in other countries they started buying equities and other commercial paper and stuff like that is this a concern that there's this big buildup of debt and going forward yeah i mean i think it is a concern um I mean, i'm hesitating a little bit because some people have been warning about this for a very long time i think i first read a book about excessive debt probably in the early 1990s so that was like 30 years ago and since then debt of course has risen uh, particularly i mean private sector debt rose a lot in the early 2000s since then it's been fairly stable as, as a percent of gdp what's happened since then it's been public sector debt rising um but you know in a way it's logical for debt to rise uh, if interest rates fall and we've had both nominal and real interest rates fall a great deal over the last 30 years you know real interest rates were often four five six percent going back to the 80s and 90s and as today of course they're negative um but even in the in the 2000s they were down to one or two percent so it makes sense really in a way to have more borrowing um and also we know that the financial markets have been liberalized you know banks are able to do more banks are, uh there's, there's new kinds of uh of instruments and, and and lending available so i think there is a concern that yes debt is high and um it, it's not necessarily going to lead to a crisis though i suspect what it means is that it may be difficult to use new debt to expand the economy further um but it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a crisis it does mean though that some people think that the central banks will need to keep interest rates fairly low in, in the next few years because if they raise interest rates very much then then you know, everything would fall over that's that's i think the concern so I guess you could argue that the global financial crisis kind of changed the way central banks acted in, in the, you know, many of the major countries anyway. Have there any, have, have there been other changes in terms of inflation targeting that central banks have had? This first came in in the 1990s. It was, uh, it was pioneered really by New Zealand, uh, then Canada, and then the UK started uh, in the early 90s and, and very much formalized it in 1997. Uh, the ECB went for it in the early 2000s, sort of slowly, almost grudgingly, they, they went for it. Um, and the US started doing it informally and, and then got formal about it, I think only in about 2012. Um, but they were essentially doing it for, for much of this century. Um, and it, it really grew out of a feeling that actually if we could um, really tell people what inflation target we're going for, that would give people clarity. Uh, about what policy will be and, and of course that's been one of the other big changes the greater transparency in the way central banks operate uh, you go back to the 80s um, the central bank or the government in the UK's case would decide on what it was going to do you wouldn't tell anybody it would it would simply start operating in the market it would uh, you know buy gilt sell gilts try to try to move bank reserves around and, and have an effect so you'd have this meeting and everybody would wait with bated breath to see whether the Bank of England would would do anything in the markets. Now today, of course, it's, it's completely different. Um, they have a meeting and then there's a big press conference where they tell you not only what they're going to do, but why they did it and what they're thinking and what they might think if something else happens. And, and there's a massive uh, openness about it. The, the Fed and the Bank of England publish forecasts and expectations. Um, so it's it's really transparent, or they attempt to be transparent now about how they do it. So that's another big change that we've seen develop over the last 20 or 30 years. But then, so inflation targeting started in the 90s. I think the big changes since the global financial crisis have, have more been in the instruments that they use to try to, to reach that inflation target. So before 2008, it was all about short-term interest rates. 
uh, the US, UK, everywhere else. That's That was really the only instrument. And since then, of course, interest rates have gone very low. Uh, and so the emphasis has been uh, more on using other things. Quantitative easing, obviously one of the big ones, uh, so-called forward guidance. Um, that's part of this whole press conference thing where you try to indicate you know, what you're going to do. Uh, maybe even make uh, interest rate moves conditional. Uh, you'll only raise interest rates when something happens uh, in the economy, for example. Um, we've also had uh, so-called funding for lending schemes in various countries where the central banks actually provide money to banks, provided they do certain things with it. So there's been a whole lot of new instruments of policy, all, of course, trying to stimulate um, simply because interest rates uh, became difficult to use once they got to zero. Thank you, John. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, when I started in the market, we did have a bunch of Fed watchers sitting around looking at what was going on and, you know, the money supply or whatever the heck that Fed was doing that day. And then they'd all jump up and down and say, they cut rates, they raise rates. And I'd go, okay, whatever. Because I was just a guy, you know, putting numbers down on a jotter. But you're right. It, it was definitely not very transparent. And... Fed watchers got paid good money to try to figure out what the heck that, you know, reading the tea leaves, as it was called, to try to figure out what the heck the central bank was doing now and what they might be doing in the future. But yeah. one one thing that seems to have changed, John, is when I was a kid in, in university and stuff, we always talked about inflation expectations and you had these big formulas and I think it was something with a little E above it or something, you know, the expected rate of inflation was a major thing. Do central banks still look at that? Um, yes, they do. Uh, inflation expectations actually is very important at the moment in the way central banks think about policy. Um, I mean, the the sort of central view really of, of the Fed and, and the Bank of England and so on is that their primary task is to make sure inflation expectations are close to 2%. In other words, they want to act in such a way that uh, they keep people thinking that inflation will stay around 2%. Um, I mean, you see this very much in the UK at the moment where um, the British economy is still below the level of, of where it was uh, before the, the pandemic. Um, inflation, though, is high, largely for transitory reasons, but there's a worry that it might get entrenched. And the, the Bank of England is talking about raising rates, even though the economy is still not, not very strong at all. Uh, and they're doing that because they think that inflation expectations might rise. Uh, there's obviously so much talk about higher inflation in the press. Everybody can see the higher prices they're paying might just be a one-off that's what we tend to think but but uh, people are worried that that will get entrenched into expectations so people ask for higher wages uh, companies uh, raise their prices without even thinking about it um, and suddenly you do get inflation going so so I think the central bank orthodoxy anyway at the moment is very much to to worry about inflation expectations um, I mean there's some doubt about whether that is really what's what's going on um, I mean maybe you're you're thinking of um, the, there's a recent um, paper from somebody at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, um, not an official paper, of course, but but by one of the experienced researchers there, Jeremy Rudd, and he's saying, well, actually, inflation expectations may not be that important after all. Um, and he's written this uh, rather amusing, quite quite geekish, but rather amusing article um, about how the, there isn't much theoretical justification for that view that inflation expectations are important. And also empirically, it doesn't necessarily stand up. In other words, inflation came down in the 80s and 90s. And the central bank view is that they got inflation expectations down and that allowed inflation to come down. And he's saying, well, actually, perhaps it was the other way around. 
they got inflation down by having some severe recessions, high unemployment for a while, and that brought inflation expectations down. Um, so it's a question of you know, what leads what. But if it is the latter, um, then actually the, the important point is to keep inflation down. You don't have to worry so much about inflation expectations. So that's a, that's a very uh, big debate just at the moment, which uh, people are talking about. Um, we'll have to see how that works out. All right, John, last two questions here. Thank you for your time. If we're looking at experiments, then surely you must be paying some attention to what's going on in Turkey, where they seem to be taking the view that higher interest rates from the central bank cause inflation to go up. So by cutting interest rates, it seems they want to get inflation to come down. Do you think that's going to catch on? Uh, in a word, no. I mean, that that is the view of the president. Um, as far as I know, he's not a not an economist, and I don't think you'll find any economist, frankly, who who really believe that. If you want to be central bank governor of Turkey, you could probably say yes, I believe that. But otherwise, um, uh, no, I don't think anybody believes that. It's um, it's rather a, it's a bizarre idea. I, I, it's very hard to see how how that would work like that. I mean, it seems clear that if you raise interest rates, that's going to slow the economy, and if you slow the economy, that's that's going to lower inflation. Any other view, um, except in perhaps very exceptional circumstances, doesn't make a lot of sense. And we see that with Turkey, because um, when they lower interest rates, the currency falls, uh, and that adds to inflation. So it's, it's it's very hard to see how that, that really makes any sense. Okay, so if that doesn't catch on, what do you think central banks will be looking to do in the, you know, the, let's say next five to 10 years? Are they going to be keeping to the regime that they are now? Or like the Fed, they've adjusted since the COVID well, I guess it started adjusting a little bit before COVID, but they've really seemed to have cemented since the COVID uh, hit to the economic uh, outlook and economic growth. They, they've come in with all sorts of different terms rather than just looking to preempt inflation or to you know deal with employment. They seem to be talking about averages and things like that. Is that, is that going to catch on with other central banks? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The, the central banks, um, several of them, have had a, a review of, uh, of policy, the US, the Europe, Canada, They've had a real review of how to approach policy and they've stuck with inflation targeting, but they've made changes, or at least some of them have. So in the US, um, they had an inflation target of, of 2%, but now what they're saying is that they want to reach 2% on average over time. So in other words, you don't sort of start afresh every January and say, right, we need 2% inflation this year, regardless of what happened the previous year. You look at where you've been, and if you've been below 2% for a while, then you say, well, actually, we're happy to be above 2%. In fact, we want to be above 2% for a while, and presumably vice versa, although they haven't been talking so much about that recently. Now, that is a change because uh, on average, you'd expect then inflation could be higher over time, um, you know, in instead of uh, seeing periods below 2 and then periods of 2 and then more periods below 2. So that's important. The Fed's actually gone a bit further than that too because I think one of the most important um, sort of policy approaches that we saw under Paul Volcker and then also really under uh, Greenspan and Bernanke was the so-called precautionary approach. So as the economy went through the economic cycle and uh, as it began to approach what they thought of as full employment, somewhere around four or five percent, um, what they would do was they say, right, we need to start raising interest rates now because if we wait, inflation is going to get entrenched. Now, they've changed that policy now. But the, what they're saying now is, uh, we're going to go to full employment and then we're going to see. We're going to see whether inflation picks up. We're going to see what happens to wages. 
And only if it really does look like uh, inflation getting high, only then will we respond. Um, now, I think for people who remember the 1970s, that seems quite risky, seems quite dangerous. Um, but I guess the experience the Fed has had over the last 20 years is that inflation has tended to be on the low side. Um, so they're tending to think that's the bigger risk than inflation on the high side. Again, we'll see how that works out. Thank you, John. That, that was really interesting. And I, I, I hope in future podcasts, we will be able to see how it's working out for the Fed and other central banks as we bounce out of this COVID uh, recession. But once again, thank you for your time, John. And uh, to our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have any questions and or want to see further discussion of this topic or other topics, feel free to email us. Our details are on our website. All right, John. Thank you again. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks, Jerry. Cheers. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.